This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Today, a University of St. Thomas engineering professor, John Abraham, joins me again to discuss the continuing rapid rise in ocean temperatures and what that means for human health. Professor Abraham, John, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on, David. Listeners may recall I discussed this topic with John last January, specifically on the 18th. Professor Abraham's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, as Professor Abraham noted a year ago, oceans that cover 71% of the Earth's surface absorb around 93% of heat energy trapped by greenhouse gases, termed more formally ocean heat content, since the start of the Industrial Age. Since the 1940s, OHC, again, ocean heat content, has increased by 428 zettajoules, or a billion trillion joules, and a new ocean heat content record has been set nearly every year since 1991. As an aside, it's worth noting many believe ocean heat content is a better way of measuring anthropocentric warming because it is less variable on a year-to-year basis than surface temperature measurements. The 2022 date is not surprising when you consider, for example, global CO2 emissions increased by over 2 billion tons or rose by 6% to a total of 36 billion tons over 2021, their highest ever level. In 2022, the planet's seas absorbed about 11 zettajoules of heat, equivalent to the energy of seven nuclear bombs exploding every single second of the year, or 19 times as much as the total energy produced by all human activities in 2020. The consequences of warming ocean water to human health and survival are innumerable and incalculable. As Professor Abraham wrote last year in The Guardian, quote-unquote, oceans actually control the Earth's weather, close quote. In addition, warming ocean water causes huge, politely termed disruptions to marine life from phyloplankton to zooplankton that in turn substantially threatens the availability of food we eat and oxygen we breathe. With me again to discuss rising up ocean temperatures and consequences thereof is Professor John Abraham. John, I thought that was a lot shorter when I wrote it. Well, <laughs> you know that you packed a you packed a lot in there. That was great. All right, let's let's start then, John. Um, obvious first question: Your publication is January 11th in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences. Can you provide an overview of the paper? Yeah, sure. Uh, we I was part of a team of 24 scientists from 16 institutions around the world, including scientists in North America, Europe, and Asia. And we collected temperature data of the world's oceans. And we assessed that temperature data, and we compared it with temperature data from the prior years. And we show that the Earth's temperature or the ocean's temperatures have increased And that is because the amount of heat energy in the oceans have increased. And so we use temperature to measure heat energy. And as you said, uh, every, every year, it seems like we keep breaking records. And it's no surprise because humans have emitted so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. It's causing the earth to warm. And 
almost all of that warming ends up in the ocean. So what I like to say, David, is if you want to know global warming, you've got to study ocean warming. And, and that's what we did in this, in this paper. We did look at some other things related to what's called stability and salinity of the ocean. But the key finding that's getting a lot of press is the increased temperatures. Right. Thank you. I, I, I'll have a question, I think, on salinity. But let me just ask this uh, follow-up. Um, is it correct? It is correct to assume, and you've noted this last year, is it, is it correct to assume warming will continue long after we stopped emitting greenhouse gases? And why is that? Uh, you are correct. Uh, even if we stop emitting greenhouse gases, there will be con- some continued warming. Uh, that's because the Earth right now, well, the climate is like a locomotive. And if you are in a locomotive train, you know, a train going down the train tracks and you see a problem and you pull the brakes, it takes a long time for that train to slow down and then stop. And what we say about a locomotive is it has what's called inertia. The same thing is uh, occurring with the climate. The climate has inertia and changes that we make now uh, will have small effects in the near future, but those effects will accumulate as we move on. So changes that we make now, we'll really, we'll really see the benefit of those changes maybe a decade or two decades from now. So definitely uh, warming will continue even if we reduce greenhouse gases, but if we reduce greenhouse gases, the amount of warming will be less. And that's the critical thing. We've, we've long passed the time when we could stop global warming. We're now at the time period where we can just control how bad it is going to be. Uh, and the extra warming that we talk about is called pipeline warming. So what scientists like to say is there's extra warming in the pipeline. Um, and, and that's the warming that we would have if we reduced greenhouse gases. But still, something we need to do and something that our future generations are relying upon us to do. Thank you. As I sadly have become to phrase uh, uh, phrase it increasingly, and that is this subject is, is increasingly becoming a, a topic for a history class. Um, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, when you look at history books, sometimes we ask ourselves, "Why did those people do that back then?" You know, what were they thinking? Right. And this is absolutely a case study uh, for future history classes. What, they're going to look back and wonder why we took such little action, and it took us so long. Right. Right. Let me go to a, a point you made last year because I want to revisit it or reinforce it. Uh, should, of course, uh, listener have not heard you last year. You noted last year, at some point, ocean's ability to absorb greenhouse uh, uh, gas-trapped heat will cease. Can you can you uh, discuss that again? Yeah, sure. So the oceans are doing us two huge favors. First of all, the oceans are taking up the heat from the atmosphere. And they are, if, I mean, if the oceans were not absorbing heat, our atmosphere would have already heated to uninhabitable levels. So the oceans are absorbing heat and they're also absorbing carbon dioxide. Uh, And think about, think about our daily experience. If you ever drink a soda, you know, if you take a soda and shake it and then open it up, it'll fizz, right? Mm -hmm. The The reason why it fizzes is carbon dioxide is coming out of the water. Soda is also called a carbonated beverage. 
Now, what we're doing to the ocean is a little bit like what these home soda makers do. A soda stream is one brand. Uh, we're injecting carbon dioxide into the water. Um, or, or carbon dioxide is being absorbed into the water because there's so much of it in the atmosphere. But as the carbon dioxide gets absorbed into the water, the water is less and less able to absorb more carbon dioxide. So one of the things that we are concerned about is that the ability of the oceans to continue absorbing both carbon dioxide and heat will decrease as time goes on. Uh, and, and that's something that we're watching very closely and measuring. All right, let me just have a couple few other follow-up questions on this research. You note, noted in the abstract in the article, of course, is that you you note that certain, and we know warming does not occur evenly across the 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 earth, say, for example, the poles are warming at a much faster rate uh, than elsewhere on the planet. Um, but you note four basins, uh, North Pacific, North Atlantic, Mediterranean, Southern Oceans, uh, recorded their highest OHC since the 1950s. So uh, could you say a bit more about um, uneven, uh, the effect of uneven warming? Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. Some parts of the planet are warming faster than others, and that uh, extends over the oceans. And you labeled four ocean uh, basins or ocean regions that are warming more rapidly than others. And that has, well, there's a number of physical reasons for that. First of all, um, the atmosphere is flowing. Uh, you know, air, air, we have air motion, so mm -hmm. air carries heat around the planet. But also the oceans are flowing. And they carry their heat with them as well. And the two interact. So as the atmosphere changes direction, it actually pushes the ocean around. So we don't expect the, the oceans to warm uniformly. And they're not warming uniformly. And that actually has consequences for society, especially human health. So, I mean, at the end of the day, um, th this study was academic in one sense. We wanted to measure the oceans so that we would know what's happening to the planet Earth. But it's also practical in another sense, because a warming ocean has such strong effects on human health and society and economics. And the unevenness of the warming is one of the things that dictates how impactful uh, the warm oceans will be. I'll just give you an example. If ocean waters warm over areas where hurricanes form, that's going to make hurricanes more strong. If oceans warm over areas where precipitation begins, that's going to make the precipitation stronger. So it's not just that the oceans are warming. Um, it's it also we're keeping track of how it's warming, the geographic distribution, and, and what the distribution will be of the impacts on society. Right. You anticipated my next question or one of my next, and this is the phrase you use in the article. The continued amplification of global hydrological cycle. I, I, I love that. I love. Wow. The, I Say love that. how academically. I love these academic phrases. But this is the this is the Hurricane Harvey uh, issue yeah. when surface Gulf temperatures were record high and then sixty inches of rain later. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, we did a study, I think that Harvey was in 2017 or something like that. Mm -hmm. We did a study on how the warm ocean waters right off the coast of Texas uh, made Harvey such a powerful rainstorm. And, um, you know, <laughs> the phrases that we use in, in our technical publications are phrases that you sort of want to bring out at a cocktail party, <laughs> increased hydrologic cycle. Well, here's what that means. 
it be, as you warm the planet, the or as you warm the oceans, the atmosphere warms, so that's the air, but also the atmosphere gets more humid because warm oceans evaporate water into the atmosphere much more readily. So we're putting heat and moisture into the atmosphere. And what that does is it makes the storms stronger. So when we say increase the hydrological cycle, what we mean is we're increasing evaporation and precipitation. And what we found was really, really interesting and has tremendous impacts for human health and society. What we found was areas that are currently dry are becoming drier and areas that are currently wet are becoming wetter. And let's think about the United States. The eastern third of the United States has become wetter and the heaviest downpours have increased significantly. So the 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 rainstorms that cause the most flooding have increased. The western third of the United States, which is dry, has become drier. And the middle part of the US hasn't changed much in terms of overall rain. But the rain is coming in heavier downbursts. So at the end of the day, we're seeing more intense storms, but also more intense droughts. Uh, and the weather is swinging from one extreme to the other. And that's what we mean by increased hydrologic cycle. Okay, thank you. So on that point, to note the obvious, floods in Pakistan, uh, destructive flooding, a uh, record destructive flooding, uh, same in Western Australia. Uh, and, of course, the recent uh, pummeling of California via these um, so-called – I have to – this is another phrase uh, – atmospheric rivers. Yeah. So let me like, – yeah. you want to comment on that or – Yeah, sure. Let's let's focus our attention on the California because this is a classic example of what we – what scientists expected with climate change and is happening. California has – suffered one of their worst droughts and heat waves, worst drought and heat wave in perhaps a thousand years. But then they've had this interspersed heavy deluges, uh, like this recent atmospheric river. So this is a this is exactly what we expect. You're gonna get you're gonna have swings from one extreme, hot and dry, to another extreme, flooding, and then back to your first extreme, hot and dry again. And we're whipsawing or seesawing back and forth between these extremes. And that's a real challenge for society and for human human well-being. Right, exactly. I don't know if, uh, John, you're into the so-called uh, cli-fi climate fiction literature, but if you read um, uh, Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, he has an account in that novel where L.A. is hit by this massive atmospheric river, and he tells the story of this guy canoeing around um, via highway roads, uh, in a kayak trying to rescue people and LA is destroyed to, I think he guesstimates in the novel, some $30 billion amount, but similar, uh, similar effect, uh, as he, uh, uh portrays the novel. Let me, on salinity, I did want to use that, uh, in context. And I do want to get into this because my understanding is we're going to see a change this year, uh, from an El Nino to an El Nino effect. Uh, for listeners who are unaware, although this this is now commonly uh, this weather pattern is commonly now uh, discussed, can you explain uh, what this means? In part because, of course, uh, El Nino is usually attributed to hotter years, so the expectation is we may set a record for heat uh, this year. 
Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. So um, El Nino and La Nina are oscillations or cycles in the Pacific. And essentially, if you if you draw a line, start it start in Australia and draw and and walk straight east until you get to South America. Imagine that part of the Pacific. That's where the El Nino and La Nina happen. And some years that area of of the Pacific is very cold, and that's called a La Nina. And in other instances, that area is very warm, and that's an El Nino. Now, when that area is warm, uh, by the way, the El Nino-La Nina is a natural fluctuation that occurs, uh, but it's going to occur on top of long-term human warming. So the effects are going to be magnified, so to speak. When you have an El Nino and that there's this area of very hot water, the air gets moist and hot, and that moisture gets carried around the planet. And you'll get rainfall uh, in different parts of the planet. So, But you also have a heating of the atmosphere. So when you get an El Nino, you definitely have a bump up in the global temperature. Um, it looks like, an, and you're exactly right, that it looks like we're shifting from a La Nina to an El Nino. In fact, we had a, a somewhat strange triple La Nina um, that we're going through. It was three La Ninas in a row, uh, which is a bit unusual, uh, and it appears to be switching over to an El Nino. The switch may happen by May or June or so, so it's, it's hard to pinpoint the exact time. Now, when you get an El Nino, uh, a few months after it, you can start feeling the effects and the the atmospheric temperatures will rise. So an El Nino will definitely, you, I will say it on your station, on your show, <laughs> of the first time. When we get the El Nino, we will set an all another all-time record for atmospheric temperatures. The only caveat is there's a, sometimes like a six-month delay. So it might be the second half of 2023 or the beginning of 2024 where we'll be setting a lot of temperature records. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I, I look forward to the summer. Uh, let's, yeah. let's, let's continue. Um, I did want to ask uh, a follow-up. I think we did touch upon this last year as well. And this is, this is the issue or aspect that I think is equally concerning. And this is um, the increasing acidity, ocean acidity factor as temperatures warm. Uh, could you comment on that? Sure. So there is a process called ocean acidification that is happening. Now, the ocean waters have a certain chemical balance, uh, and it's measured by pH. And as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere gets absorbed into the ocean waters, it changes the acidity. So think about it. Before the Industrial Revolution, we had a certain amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that the atmosphere was in balance with the ocean waters. But in the last 100 years or so, 150 years, we've dumped a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that's being absorbed into the ocean water. And it's changing the acidity, it's changing the chemistry of the water. That's important uh, for a number of reasons, but in particular, if you are a marine animal that makes a calcium-based shell, it is harder to form your shells and to keep your shell when the pH changes. So there are tremendous risks that animals in the ocean are going to experience just from temperature alone. 
but we're adding ocean acidification, which is a which is an additional stressor on marine mammals. And in fact, ocean acidification is probably the one. Well, it's definitely one of the biggest concerns about climate change. Um, it's not well known outside of the scientific community, but amongst the risks of climate change, in my mind, it's the it's one of the most significant. And this gets at the uh, coral reef bleaching bleaching issue, and we know that coral fish feed just coral fish alone feed about a half a, a billion people around the world. And you hear this phrase now: uh, uh, oceanic deserts. Um, so my question relative is, as the pH uh, changes, and, and I've read that uh, ocean chemistry has not changed this dramatically uh, over the last, say, as you said, 100 years, over uh, a known chemistry, it hasn't been known to change this dramatically in 50 million years. Uh, that's um, interesting. Uh, what, is, is there a way to calculate uh, say the, the reduction in marine life or correlate the reduction to marine life to increase or change in pH? I mean, it would seem to me uh, it might be fairly straightforward. I mean, there is a straight, pretty straightforward calculation relative to the amount of carbon we have in the atmosphere and how much the temperature increases. Um, yeah, so you can correlate the changes to the ocean and its impact on marine health. Uh, the, there is a couple complicating factors. First of all, you've got two things going on. You have changes to temperature and changes to uh, chemistry or acidity. Uh, and so teasing out the differences is challenging. But I will tell you this, that the, some marine animals have evolved to live in very narrow um temperature and salinity ranges think about the ocean near the tropics the temperature of the ocean near the tropics doesn't change much during the year uh, you know it might change a degree or so maybe less maybe a little bit more but it's a pretty tight range that's pretty different from the ocean temperatures let's say near greenland that go through much bigger changes during the year animals that have evolved to live in the high northern or southern latitudes are generally able to handle uh, temperature changes that are somewhat large. But animals, whether on land or in the ocean, that have evolved, especially near the tropics, their, their bodies are really attuned to very small windows of temperature variability and salinity variability. So um, it's, it's interesting that the many of the animals we're most worried about are animals that have evolved to live within tightly controlled temperatures and salinity levels. And what we saw with salinity is interesting. The areas of the ocean, the ocean is not uniformly salty. Some parts are saltier than others. Mm -hmm. And we found that the areas that are currently the saltiest are becoming more salty. And the areas that are currently least salty are becoming even less salty. And the reason why that's happening is if you remember I, we talked about evaporation and precipitation. When water evaporates from the ocean, the salt gets left behind. Mm -hmm. And you get left with a saltier ocean. But in areas where there's rainfall, the water becomes fresher or less salty. 
So by looking at the salt distribution of the oceans, we found that areas that are currently already getting a lot of rain are raining even more. And areas that are currently evaporating a lot and are dry are becoming even drier. And that goes back to our intensifying that hydrological cycle. So, you know, there's so many different things going on. These things are connected and there's multiple stressors that are happening. And that's why we've really got to maintain our vigilance and, and measurements of the ocean and connect it to the health and well-being of marine animals. Now, you asked the question, is it, is it possible to, I think, quantify how much of an effect a warm or saltier mm-hmm. ocean has on a particular animal? And that definitely can be done. I'm not a, a marine biology expert, so that's not my area. But yes, other scientists are quantifying what, Im- what is the impact to these animals as the oceans change. So thank you. So this this gets at your discussion of the salinity salinity contrast index, and this was your point: salty gets saltier, fresher gets fresher pattern. And I'll mention too, and I recognize the fact, and we read much more about this, and that is marine life um, trying to adapt by moving, you know, our, uh, further north for colder waters, perhaps, uh, but by way of trying to adapt to uh, warmer ocean waters. Let me let me ask this question. Let's move to policy um, with our time remaining. You know, I mentioned. Um, well, I don't. I didn't mention in the intro, but I will say that I I'm surprised that in in my 25 plus years in D.C. doing policy research and and work on uh, climate crisis related health policy, the ocean ocean warming never gets discussed. I've never heard even a hallway conversation about this as it relates to human health. So my question for you, other than sort of the normal where you, where you would, um, where you would understand this conversation or this, uh, this work to be discussed, NOAA, uh, say uh, EPA, NASA, other federal agencies, what, what's been your experience to the extent that your research findings uh, get reviewed or, um, appreciated, let's just say, uh, in the healthcare policy world? Well, they really, it really doesn't. And part of it is because when people think about healthcare policy related to climate change, they often think about uh, changes to airborne temperatures, you know, and, and definitely as temperatures increase, that can affect uh, people's health. It can be dangerous for people with underlying conditions, especially the mm-hmm. old or, or the young. Uh, but it turns out weather is driven by the oceans. And so for people involved in healthcare and healthcare policy, um, if, if they, there are, they should be aware of the myriad of ways that a warmer ocean affects human health. It's not just through warmer, warmer weather, which definitely happens, but we're finding longer stretches of weather um, that are severe. So you might get a heat wave that, 20 years ago was a three-day heat wave and is now a seven-day heat wave. Or you'll get, a, you'll get a heat wave that 20 years ago was 105 degrees, but now it's 108 degrees. Or you'll get a heat wave that doesn't uh, provide much cooling during the night. We'll get some of these heat waves that are very, very hot at night 
uh, whereas in the past, uh, the air would cool down a little bit at night. So we're definitely having the connection. We definitely know there's a connection between the oceans and weather, and that affects human health. And I think that message has been slow to get across to people who are involved in healthcare policy. In addition, though, there are risks related to food production and storms. I mean, think about the storms that hit the U.S. uh, this last summer, the hurricanes. I mean, that is definitely a human health issue, and those storms are definitely made more severe by uh, global warming. And so we can't you know, sometimes people think about climate change in the oceans as dealing with polar bears and maybe seals and whales. No, I mean, it does, it does affect those animals, but it also really affects human health, human economy, and it's not just human health near the coasts. I mean, rising seas and more intense hurricanes definitely are a coastal issue, mm-hmm. but we're changing the weather, rainfall patterns, and temperature everywhere across our entire country and across the world. So, You know, I'll I'll take blame for it as a scientist. I think scientists are we it is incumbent upon us to do a better job of explaining our research and why it's important. And I think we're we're waking up to the fact that we have to continue to work at doing a better job. But there's also been a level of disinterest uh, among some people who haven't recognized the connection between the health of our oceans and the health of our fellow humans. And so uh, we've got some work to do. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, relative to um, the intensity of these storms, another academic phrase I appreciate is outside the historical envelope, which is uh, sometimes how you see this described. In fact, relative to your, your kind of about intensity as well, you said uh, along the coast, certainly. So when you noted that, my immediate thought was, yeah, particularly if you used to live in Fort Myers, uh, Florida, which of course is largely uh, no longer um, existing. Uh, my, my, that question was a set of questions, uh, John, for my last. And this, I'm going to paint you a picture here, uh, put you on the spot. Uh, so I'm going to pose the question this way. You find yourself on, on the Hill, uh, on the Senate side. You're in an elevator with the incoming chairman of the Public Health Senate Committee, which is the Health Committee, Bernie Sanders. And the elevator, for whatever reason, stops. And you're on the elevator, say with... Uh, the senator and his help, uh, health health staff director, um, and he turns to you and he says, what do you do and what should I know? So this is Senator Sanders, the chair of the health committee. Uh, what do you tell him? You have, uh, well, you don't know how long you have, but let's just say you have a minute or two. Yeah. Well, the, the elevator might start up and the doors might open any time. Right, so correct. Yes. Talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look. Well, it's the I, government. It's the government, John. So let's assume the elevator is going to be stuck for more than one minute. Do I have a sleeping bag? You might be there <laughs> right. overnight. Yes. Um, the, the point here's the point I would try to make, and this is really the takeaway message for for the listeners. Uh, the climate is changing. Humans are causing the change. We know that. We've now measured how fast it's changing. We have a pretty good sense of what it's going to be like in the future. But what we need to do now is decide what do we do about it. And what people need to know is two things. One, the oceans matter for human health. They matter for weather. They matter for food production. They matter for coastal uh, infrastructure. So the oceans really matter. The other thing people need to know is doing something about climate change will save us money in the future. And ignoring climate change is very expensive. 
Over the last 10 years, the United States has spent approximately $250 billion, with a B, dollars per year on climate change disasters. Think about what we could have been using that money on. Think about what the climate would be like if we would have started to take action in the 1980s or 1990s. Time matters, um, but you know the, every every day that we avoid taking action is a day that the negative consequences are going to accrue. So we need to take action, and if we take action in the right way, we will not only help save our environment, but we will also help save jobs and we can uh, we, we can help save money. Uh, one of the areas that I also work in is clean and renewable energy distribution, and it turns out wind and solar are now cost comparative with coal. Right. So I can, I can pay a farmer in Minnesota for electricity. I don't have to import uh, petroleum from the Middle East. I mean, we, we are in a potentially win-win situation. We can save money, save the environment, and create the jobs of the future. Because I'll tell you, uh, the jobs of the future are going to be centered around water and energy. And I would rather uh, export our water and energy technologies to the rest of the world than have to buy their technology. So there's a real economic opportunity here. And even people who are dismissive about the reality of climate change, they generally are receptive to the economic advantages that we can uh, ex- realize when we take this problem seriously. I appreciate that last point, John. Particularly, I've been writing lately uh, the phrase, it's it's cheaper to save the climate than to destroy it. And relative to your referencing the 1980s, and I'm sure you've seen this, and I'll just reference it for the listener. I just watched again the uh, Carl Sagan's testimony in 1985 to the Senate. And this was before a very young Al Gore, um, and amongst others, the former senator from uh, Montana, Max Baucus. And what's interesting is... You could, if you didn't know it was 1985 and you just listened to it, it would be as uh, his comments would be as on point today as they were now uh, almost 40 years ago. So, with that, John, thank you so much for your overview of this. Uh, my congratulations on, on continuing to produce uh, very sound research. Uh, I'll try to use it to my extent that I can. I hope others do as well. So, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.